We'll be reading Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 31. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. Charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him, said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he summoned, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, since Then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, 
so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us wisdom and insight as we look into your word this morning? Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to speak through your word to us, challenge us, encourage us, set us straight where we need to be set straight, humble us where we need to be humbled, lift us up where we need to be uplifted. We, thank, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, Jesus has been preaching the good news of the kingdom all throughout the book of Luke, but we're in a section of Luke that specifically tells us, where Jesus is specifically instructing us on what this kingdom is like. In chapter 13, we saw that this kingdom was, has an exclusive entrance through the king, Jesus, and yet somehow, still, this kingdom is expansive, he says. And then in chapter 14, he followed that by explaining that many will be invited to the kingdom banquet. And he warned us not to reject that invitation. And yet he also said that because of the rejection of some, he'll turn and he'll invite many to the banquet. The masses will come in. And then in chapter 15, we saw that God and his servants rejoice whenever a sinner repents and enters. When those masses turn to Christ and enter the kingdom, the heaven rejoices, and so should we. And at the end of what he was saying there in chapter 15, we had this story of, of two brothers, and it ended with an older brother who felt like he was being cheated out of his inheritance, the inheritance that was owed him because of his younger brother, what his younger brother did, and because his younger brother repented, and his father received him back. The story ends on a cliffhanger, remember? Will the older brother continue to prioritize himself? Or will the older brother realize that his younger brother's restoration is far more valuable? Now, I, I always thought that the story of the prodigal son ended there, at the end of chapter 15. Then when we turn the page to chapter 16, that it's, okay, that topic is done, a new topic has begun. But in reality, chapter 16 is Jesus continuing his argument. Chapter 16 is commentary on the older brother's condition. The two stories in this passage are about rich men. What do they do with their wealth, their inheritance? What do they do with it now? And in eternity, what will happen? It's all commentary on the older brother, his concern for his inheritance, his possessions, over his brother's forgiveness and restoration. Really, all of it is directed to the Pharisees and their misplaced priorities. Even 
At the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1, when it says that Jesus turns from the Pharisees and he turns to his disciples to tell them this story about this dishonest manager, what he's doing, we know this because of the Pharisees' reaction, because the Pharisees were in earshot, they were listening. He's turning to the disciples, he's warning them against what the Pharisees' heart condition is, what the Pharisees were doing, and in turn, also instructing the Pharisees. So really, it's a, this chapter is about the Pharisees' misplaced priorities. Their, their economics, we might say, were off. They were only factoring in this life, not the next. And Jesus wants to make it clear that this is a dreadful mistake. And so Jesus then, here in chapter 16, is giving us a lesson on what I'm going to call kingdom economics. Now, I'm not going to claim to be an expert in economics, generally speaking. You know, I, I don't know. I've learned, I guess, over the years a few things about some home economics, if you will. I find it's best to stick to a few simple principles. Work hard, spend less than you make, keep a budget. It seems best for most people, just simple, although not always easy, right? Well, the kingdom has economics too. I think there's some simple principles that make sense out of complex situations. And they're simple, but they're not always easy. And some of these economics about how the kingdom works may be surprising to you. And so, we're going to look this morning at eight principles of kingdom economics. Now, I've, I got a little grief because I'll do a two-point sermon, and then I'll have four subpoints under each of the two points. And so I said... Well, whatever. I'm just going to do eight points then. So here's eight points. That was a joke, sort of. Simple principles to navigate complex decisions of life with the kingdom in view. That's what this is. And the bottom line of this is this. The bottom line of the whole passage, the whole sermon is this. How you invest your life now matters for eternity. You need to understand how you invest your life today, it matters eternally. Okay, eight principles. It's going to be hopefully fast, so if you take notes, you get your hand ready. Okay, principle number one, we see this in verse one. You don't own your life, you steward it. You don't own your life, you steward it. This is foundational to all the rest of of the kingdom principles. If you don't grasp this, the rest of this sermon is probably not going to make a lot of sense. Okay? Yes, in one way, you do own things, right? You own a car, you own a house, you own whatever. But in a bigger sense, in a grander sense, God owns everything. Everything that you have, he's given it to you. You're a steward. The word manager there is the same word as steward in the Greek language. You are a steward of everything that God has given you. And when I say everything, I mean more than just money or cars or bank accounts. I mean the day, your calendar, your relationships, the breath you breathe, the food you eat. I mean, literally everything is stewarded, your talents, your gifts, your abilities, all of it is God's and he's given it to you for you to steward. Psalm 24, 1 says, 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We're stewards of it. To what end? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 quotes Psalm 24, 1, and then continues to tell us this. Then, quote, do all to the glory of God, end quote. That's the application of this truth. If God owns everything and you are just stewards of it, then everything that you do, everything that you have, ought to be for God's glory alone. This was the purpose given to Adam and Eve in the garden to fill the earth with God's glory. In or, and, and the byproduct of that is that humanity would flourish. Do you understand? We think, sometimes people will say, well, God just seems to be a glory hog. Why does he always want all the glory to go to him? Well, listen, if, if all the glory is in truth owed to you, then it would be wrong, it would be evil to not point all the glory to you. And in fact, the way that the the earth is created and ordered means that if the glory is not pointed to God, if you do anything not for God's glory, it will necessarily harm or hinder human flourishing. Do you get that? You think it's helping humanity, but if it's not for God's glory, it cannot because that's how everything is ordered. So the steward is wasting the possessions of the owner because he's using them for his own glory and his own benefit. Anything you do for your own glory, for the, for the glory of anything that does not have God's glory as the number one priority over all things is a mismanagement of what God has given you. It is, every time. No matter how well-intentioned you think it is. And it will hinder human flourishing. It will, because you're working against God's created order. You're working against how the Creator set everything up. God's economy ties back into these foundational creation truths, but it also demands that we look forward into eternity. But before we get there, what we need to understand is that our economics have to remember, have to account for the fact that God is a God who works in history, and God is a God who controls all of history. And so if that's the case, then here's principle number two. You need to have a long-term perspective. And we see this in verses two through 8a. have a long-term perspective. The manager realizes that the jig is up, right? He's got me. The jig is up. My scheme is done. He's coming, and I got to pay the piper. Not only will he not be able to have the great, to use the great privileges that he's been given wrongly anymore, but he won't even be able to use them rightly anymore. It's going to be taken from him, and he will be given something different, and the prospect's we see in the text are not good. I can't, I can't dig ditches. I, I'm too, I, I can't beg. How am I going to get by? And he begins to think a little bit more broadly. He begins to think about the future. He takes what he has in the present moment and he uses it shrewdly, the text says. That is to say, he doesn't do what might be best for today or for tomorrow, but he does what might be best for the long haul, Right? Most likely, this marking down of the debts was not 
a cutting in out something that was actually owed to the master. When he says, what do you owe my master? A hundred, we'll make it 80. Or what do you owe my master? A hundred, we'll make it 50. That 20 that's cut out, that 50 that's cut out, that's not uh, the master's money. Most likely that is either interest that he's charging wrongly or his own fee for managing the stuff. And we, and we can determine that by the fact that the mass, the owner goes to the manager and what does he say? He commends him. And every time when that word is used in the New Testament, it is always in a positive sense. There's no, there's no like sarcasticness. There's no, you know, rhetorical. No, he really truly praises this guy for cutting down all these people's debts. So we could go, okay, that is a good thing to do. That was a good thing for that guy to do. He gives up a quick profit for the long term. Listen, we can fall into this trap today in, in the, our own kingdom investments and the way we invest things, not only, not only in terms of just caring about our life in the moment rather than caring about what God has, but even in the way in which we invest in the kingdom, there's a reality that we should strike while the iron's hot, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But it is also true that we have a God who is sovereign over all of history. And our, our long-term, the way that we think about long-term, we might think, oh, long-term is a decade. When God thinks long-term, he thinks generations. Okay? And we've got to begin to change our mindset to stop thinking that a year is a long time and start thinking in centuries. How will this work out over centuries? We fall into the trap of wanting some kind of immediate flash. And why do we want that immediate flash? We want to see results. We want to see it quick because we know that our time is short. And when we begin to do things because we want to see it, because our time is short, rather than trusting God, what we begin to do is we begin to believe in ourselves. It begins to be about our glory. I want to see it. I want to be praised in my life for what I've done. I want to get the pat on my back in my life. I don't want to be dead for 100 years and someone to look back and go, you know what? That guy did this and this, and God ended up using that in generations for that. And I'm long dead, and I don't get to revel in the praise. We want to be validated in the work that we've done because we see the results, but we don't always see the results. Sometimes all we see is Jesus, his promises, his sovereignty his providence in history. And we know if we obey, he will use it. When we trust in God is doing the work, then we're able to do our part, just our part. And know that even if we don't see the results, if we are being obedient and faithful to what God's called us to, he will do his work. And so, you know, things like buying a building in the middle of a city makes more sense because we're not doing all the work. We don't need to fill all the pews today. Oh, well, I would love that. By all means, Lord, if you would do that, please. But we don't need to do it today. It may be a generational work. It may be that this is the start of something that God will fulfill in a year, 10 years, 20 years, or 40 years. Why does having kids and 
discipling them makes sense. It takes a long time. It's going to be a long time. Well, maybe if that's how God set it up, if that's what God's commanded us to do, maybe in the long run, in the long haul, in a time when we might actually not actually see all the results, but we can trust that if God said it, it will be so. In the long haul, that actually may be the best way to see the entire world come to know Christ, to see the masses come in. And in fact, we don't even have to, we don't even have to uh, uh, guess on that. We actually can just turn our eyes to places like Latin America and Africa that are surpassing the United States in the number of people who are Christians and their commitment to Christianity. And we can go, well, what are the factors there? Well, for the last few generations, they've been committed to Christ, they've been having kids, and they've been discipling them. Oh gosh, it turns out that that actually works. That actually works. That what God said actually produces the effect that he said it for his, that he set out for it for his glory. And so that leads me to the third uh, kingdom economics principle. It's always wise to trade what you can't keep for what lasts. We see this in the end of verse 8 and verse 9. Jesus begins explaining the parable that he just told with this statement. For the sons of the world, that is literally speaking the sons of this age, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He goes, look, you got to have some wisdom in the way that you're doing these things. Why, are the, why are, are the sons of this age, the people who are only thinking about the world and the way that they deal with things of only the world, more shrewd in their actions than my people are in their internal investments? Christians do not belong to this world or this age, and yet we live in this world and in this age. And if those who belong to it know how to invest in their future in this life, ought we not know how to invest this life into the next life? He goes on to explain that it's a good trade to use unrighteous wealth for eternal purpose. Unrighteous here, unrighteous, the word for there, it doesn't necessarily mean money earned in an unethical or immoral way. It doesn't mean, you know, hey, you know, cheat someone out of some money, but as long as you use it for the kingdom, that's okay. No, that's not what it's saying. What it, what it means to, to say is that unrighteous is like the things that don't belong to eternity. You're using the things that don't belong to eternity. You're using the things that don't last for forever, and you're investing them in such a way that it actually produces something that will last for forever. That is a good investment, right? This principle is critical for the last. See, if you have a long-term perspective of history without an, an eternal perspective as well, then you will merely give future generations more unrighteous wealth to mismanage. And again, we don't have to guess at this. All we got to do is just look at our own country. We can just look at Western civilization in general, and we can see it. This is what's happened. Once, you, once we had a long-term and an eternal perspective, generally speaking. And the results are clear. God blessed it. Just go to a different country. Go to a different country and immediately you'll see, wow, there's way more blessing here than I, I realized. 
but we lost the eternal part. And now we're coasting into a pit with the skids greased with unrighteous wealth. What happened? We stopped believing that the things of this world were worth trading for eternity. We stopped believing in eternity altogether. We stopped trading what doesn't last for what does. You see, trading, trading for what lasts doesn't mean that we don't consider unrighteous wealth. We just consider it differently. And so you might think, well, that's fine and, and great, but I don't have that, that much stuff in this world. I don't really have as much as a lot of people that I look around and it seems like what they have. And that leads us to principle number four. It's never about how much. You need to understand this about the kingdom. It's never about how much. If God owns everything, it's never about how much you have because he has it all. It's never about how much you have. It's about what you do with what you do have. If God wanted you to have more, he would have given you more. He's not un, it's, not, it's not impossible for him to do that. He has it all. He's in control of it all. Likewise, if you do feel like you look around, you go like, I have a lot. Understand, you have a lot for a reason. And you will be held accountable to whether you're faithful with that. One is faithful in much, is faithful in little. If you can't be faithful in a little, then why would God give you much? I've often heard Christians talk like this. If I only made X amount of money, then I'd give. If I only had X amount of land or such and such business or whatever, then I'd use those things for Jesus in these ways. If I just had a bigger house, then I'd invite people over. I'd be more hospitable. But listen, the truth is, if you aren't giving now, if you're not using what God has already given you right now for him, then if he gave you more, you'd be just as selfish with that. You would. 99 times out of 100. You think in your head, well, if I had that, then I would. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You want to know what you do with that? Look at what you're doing with what you have right now. That will tell you what you do with that. If God wanted you to have that, he would have given it to you, but he gave you this. What are you doing with this? It's exactly what Jesus says in verse 10. Look, if that, like I understand me saying that might bother you a little bit, but just remember Jesus said it first. I'm just repeating what he said. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And then we see this. We see this also in verse 15. Look at what verse 15 says. You are those who justify yourselves before men. You want to know what? When you say, oh, I would, I would give if I had this much. I would do this if I had that. You are justifying yourself before men and before yourself. God knows your heart. You need to stop and repent. Repent and begin to use what you've been given 
for God, who owns it. Because one day the, the owner will say, I heard about you. What is this that I hear about you? Turn in your account of your management. And woe to us if that's what God says to us. So this principle at work means that we're faithful in what we have right now. God owns everything. He's sovereign over it all, right? We don't say, God, give me more, then I'll give. But we say, God, you gave me everything in your son, and so I will trust you, and I will give what I have in whatever way you ask me to give it, whatever way you've commanded me. Because, principle five, we serve the owner, not the possessions, You do not live to serve the stuff. The manager manager isn't serving the stuff he's in management for. He's serving the owner. That's who he's serving. This is one of the big principles in this passage. It's the bottom line for this first story, right? It's one we can underline. The manager is hired to serve the owner, and he has been serving the possessions instead for his own benefit. You cannot serve two masters. By definition, there can only be one Lord. By definition, there can only be one at the top. There can only be one king. There can only be one master. By definition, it cannot be Jesus and not Jesus. That goes for everything, every area of our life. The Pharisees' response when they heard these things was to ridicule Jesus. Why? Why did they ridicule him? I'm sure that they spoke some really, really uh, profound, uh, logically sounding, reasonable things in their ridicule, but, but, but Luke actually tells us what's truly going on. They loved money, not God. And so they ridiculed Jesus. If we say there's only one owner, God, and only one Lord over all, Jesus, and everything is supposed to serve Him, and someone, anyone, even a Christian ridicules us for that, they love something else more than Jesus. And they're trying to justify themselves. But whose opinion do we value higher? It says there, Jesus says in verse 15 that this kind of thing is an abomination in the sight of God. It's abom- abomination would have been a word that the Pharisees would have been very familiar with. God, Jesus, uh, or God uses it in the Old Testament. They would have been very aware with what he is saying here. The Bible doesn't use the term abomination flippantly. Abomination means something that's it's a, lo- a loathsome thing. It's detestable. It, it causes horror and disgust, or it should. It can be translated pollutant. All sin is a pollutant, right? But, but not everything is called an abomination. Abominations pollute in a particularly defiling way. If we don't abhor what God calls an abomination, then we are like these Pharisees, ridiculing God's word and justifying ourselves. Now, we might think, well, whew, 
I know that's bad. To, you know, it's, it's probably a bad thing that they're doing, loving money and, and ridiculing Jesus. Like, that's probably, it's not a good look, right? But abomination, that's, that feels a little too strong, right? Jesus, aren't you the one that said, you know, let, let he who hasn't sinned cast the first stone, you know? Like, that feels a little bit heavy. But the clue here is right in the middle of the verse. God knows their hearts. God knows our hearts. And the issue was less, wasn't less than the action that they were doing of, of, of ridiculing Christ, but it was so much more than merely an action. It was the heart. These Pharisees were supposed to love God. They were supposed to teach people how to love God. That was the point of the whole law, right? Love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6. It's the point of the whole law. The Pharisees are supposed to teach it. And yet, they themselves were loving money instead. And they were posing as loving God, but really leading people away from God. They were posing as loving God. They, were, they talked a good talk, but really they loved money instead. They were, if I can use this analogy, because God uses it in the Old Testament, they were sleeping around with money. They were whoring themselves. That's what God's word says. With money and the opinions of others. You love one, then you hate the other. You're devoted to one, then you despise the other. The way we use our stuff is a breadcrumb trail to our hearts. What does God find there? Principle six, God makes good on his promises. Six, verses 16 through 18, these Pharisees pretended like their hearts were good, were for God, when they were not. They had been secretly unfaithful. They had been sneaking out at night and sleeping around. But God is never unfaithful. See, all the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, he says, they, they, they were all until John came, right? John the Baptist, we've, remember we read about John the Baptist at the beginning of Luke. John was the first, well, he was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And in some senses, he also had a foot in the New Testament, right? Because he was the one that made a way for Jesus and for Jesus' preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. But that good news that Jesus preaches is not a deviation from the law, no. Jesus says it's easier for creation itself to pass away than even one, one little dot of the law. And, and the word there is like the little, uh, in Hebrew, they have these little markings above and below the letters, you know, just like real slight little markings and they mean stuff. And he's like, not even one of those little markings will fall away. It's easier for the whole creation to pass away than just a bit of the law. Why? Because the law isn't just words on a page, friends. Its, its essence comes from the very nature and character of who God is. You understand that when you read the law, when you, when you open up the Old Testament, you read the Ten Commandments, when your kids are memorizing the Ten Commandments, they are memorizing the character of God. Do you get that? The eternal reality of who God is in 10 words. 
And then we have this last phrase of verse 16. This is, this is, listen, there's a, there's a little bit of a rabbit hole here, and I'm going to try to avoid the rabbit hole as much as I can, okay? Because it's eight points in one sermon, and, you know, you have lunch to get to or something. Uh, but the, the long and the short of it is, is this. People I find it hard uh, to understand when it says uh, in verse 16, everyone forces his way into it, whether that should be understood in the passive voice or the middle voice. Now, I'm not very good at English, and maybe you are an English major, so you get this right away, but most of us aren't. Middle voice, which is probably the better translation, is how the ESV translates it here. Everyone forces his way into it. That is to say, Pharisees, all these people, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, all these people are entering the kingdom now. And you should get it because you knew the law and yet you're cheating on God. But if it was translated in the passive voice, it would say something like, everyone is being forced or urged into. Everyone is being forced or urged into it. In, in other words, that would be to say, Jesus, Jesus is urging people by the preaching of the gospel, by the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God, he's urging people to come into the kingdom and the Pharisees who should be receiving that message are not. And so whether it's passive or whether it's middle, with context controlling that phrase, it's meaning a similar thing just in two different ways. The Pharisees are unfaithful to God. They should have got it. They aren't. Other people are getting into the kingdom because they believe on Christ instead of believing on the money. They love God instead of loving money and man's opinion. And God is faithful to keep the promises that he has declared all the way back in the law and the prophets. He will do what he said he will do. And then we come to verse 18 which again could be a little bit of a rabbit hole. And it feels a little out of place, right? We're reading along, we're talking about this man with this stewarding these things and the Pharisees' rebuke. We got rich man and Lazarus afterwards. And then out of nowhere, Jesus just makes this comment about, about adultery and marriage and divorce and remarriage. Like, what in the world is going on here? Why does he talk about that? Most commentators will take it Sort of the way that it, it's taken in Matthew 5, if you've read Matthew 5. Sort of a similar thing happening there, though. In Matthew 5, a couple of differences. Jesus talks more expansively about divorce. He, talks, he gives a number of other examples along with it. Look, I'm not getting rid of the law. I'm actually fulfilling it. I'm bringing it to its fullest understanding. But most of the commentators will take it in that way that this is just a quick example that Jesus is giving about the fact that he's not getting rid of the law, he's upholding it, even enhancing it. And I don't disagree with that. I certainly don't disagree that that's what Christ is doing generally. I'm just not so sure that's what Luke intends to do here with this passage. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to sell you. You can go back, you can read it yourself, and, and, and you can decide what you think. But I just want you to know that I'm actually going away from how most commentators would understand what Luke's purpose is for this, but I think the text demands it. I think the text proves it out. Whereas in, like I said, whereas in Matthew, Jesus gives multiple examples to establish this point here, Luke only gives this one, and he even leaves out really any detail that Matthew actually gives. So here's why I think that is the case. When Malachi declares that God hates divorce, 
It's not just a statement about husbands and wives on earth. It's also a statement about spiritual unfaithfulness. He is talking about God's people being faithful, unfaithful to God. He is talking about their divorce from the God whom they were to love and whom they were in covenant relationship with, okay? Jesus is faithful to his bride, and he ensures that he will only have a faithful bride presented to him, and we're told that in Ephesians chapter 5. So marriage isn't just a picture of God's covenantal relationship with uh, people. It's not just a picture of God's covenantal relationship with his church, but marriage actually derives its essence from that. Do you understand that when you are married to your spouse, that you are actually living in the essence of God's covenant relationship with his people. The thing that binds God to his people is over, and marriage derives its power, its strength, its essence from that reality, okay? That's why human unfaithfulness and divorce are such big deals, not only because of the terrible realities and consequences it creates here on earth, but because it actually makes a mockery of a God who would create us, would come into covenant with us, who would save us, and who we would turn our backs on and be unfaithful to. And that's why the Bible makes such a big deal about divorce. So the people of Israel had been largely unfaithful to God. They did not love him or trust him, and these Pharisees were the worst because they were, as it were, the head of the household. They were to be the head of the household of the people of God. They were to lead the way. They were to teach them how to be faithful, and they were the ones who were being unfaithful. They were the epitome of what Malachi and many other Old Testament prophets, those same, that same law and prophets that Jesus just referenced, they were the epitome of it. They were given a stewardship by God to manage for the owner, and they were unfaithful with it. They wasted that possession. They gave lip service to the Messiah that was to bring them the kingdom, but their hearts justified themselves. And so when Messiah came in, the form of Christ, the God-man, they did not come to him. They instead actually blocked the door, although others forced their way in around them. You see the picture that I believe that Christ is painting here. But this doesn't just connect to the previous parable. It also connects to the rich man and Lazarus, and it holds this whole section, this whole chapter together. When these Pharisees end up like the rich man and all those forcing their way in end up like Lazarus, it is not because of the unfaithfulness of God. They cannot turn to God and say, God, we were your people. Why were you unfaithful to us? Why am I here and I'm not at Abraham's side? No, it was because of their unfaithfulness. God is always faithful. He's always faithful to his promises. God does not divorce his promises and he does not divorce his people. No, the law will never fall away. It'd be easier for heaven and earth to fall away than that because God won't break his covenant. He never does. 
Hosea 6 says, you know, and Jeremiah as well, God has made a covenant with creation. Day will continue to be day, night will continue to be night, the stars will continue to be in the heavens. All of that will hold together because God has covenanted that it will be so, and, you, and so you can be rest assured that it will. Pharisees divorced God. God promised that there would be judgment for all those who divorce him. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery, and Jesus does not commit adultery. He will not marry you, Pharisees. His church will be a spotless bride. We cannot perpetuate our unfaithfulness to God and somehow expect, oh God, don't you say you save people? God makes good on his promises, and you can take that to the bank. Okay, number seven, the time of decision is now. We have a little curious little story here with the rich man and Lazarus, and again, we could spin off into a lot of details about historical things and theological this and that, about uh, Abraham's bosom and Hades and chasms and all sorts of different stuff, okay? But that would be missing the primary point for the secondary points. The rich man had it easy in this life. A bit of purple dye was incredibly expensive, uh, so it was a sign of, of extreme wealth, and it says that this man was clothed in purple and fine linen. He was extremely wealthy. Lazarus, Lazarus instead, desired to just eat some scraps from the rich man's table. Lazarus sat at the rich man's the gate of his city. And so we can guess that multiple times, many times, maybe multiple times a day, this rich man walked by Lazarus and did nothing. And they both die and Lazarus ends up comforted by Abraham and the rich man ends up in Hades. Their situations are utterly reversed. The rich man is now worse off than he was good before in this life. And Lazarus is now better off than he was bad before in this life. But when the rich man seeks to relieve, uh, seeks some relief, it can't be found, right? The chasm is too great. It can't be passed. His decision has been made. There's no going back. You see, one of the hardest parts of investing is whether it'll be worth it, right? It's hard to put money in your IRA for 30 years from now when you've got, you know, kids to feed and, and uh, bills to pay today. And you know what? That, that, that thing over there looks like it'd be really fun. I kind of want that too, you know. All that stuff starts to chip away. The man's and pressures of the immediate are always pressing. But, but once you retire, once you're ready for retirement, it's too late to go back. It's too late for investing. Friends, the time of decision is now. The time for deciding what you're going to do with what you're given is now. It's today. It's not tomorrow. Tomorrow's too late. And that brings us to our final principle. Trust the word, not the world. We see this in verses 27 through 31. In these last few verses, they really wrap it up, and it brings Jesus' statement about the law and the prophets in uh, verse 16 uh, back into view 
It's why we know that this story of the rich man and Lazarus is tied to Jesus' statements in verses 14 through 16 with the Pharisees, 14 through 18 with the Pharisees, because he comes back to Moses, the law, and the prophets. He ties it all together. The rich man had trusted in his wealth, in the things of this world, and what he could see, in his fine clothes, and his fine linen, and his, and his uh, scrumptious, it says, food that he got to eat. And he did not trust in the word of God, and it did not go well. So he asks if, if Lazarus would come back from the dead, you know, hey, if Lazarus can't get to me, would, would you just send Lazarus back from the dead to tell my brothers, because my brothers are living how I lived, and maybe, maybe they would listen to him, maybe they wouldn't end up where I end up. But Abraham responds, if they won't be convinced by God's word, then they won't be convinced even if someone comes back from the dead. We think if God would just give us more proof, if he would just show me, if he would just show me, then I would trust my things to him. Then I would trust my life to him. Then I would trust my finances to him. Then I would trust my kids to him. Then I would trust my possessions to him. If he would just show me a little bit more, if you would just give me a little bit more. But, but Abraham right here says, no, you have all you need in God's word. And if you won't trust that, then you won't trust anything else. The Bible is clear. It contains everything we need for faith and life in Christ. The Word of God is powerful to salvation. But many trust in easy money and possessions and comfort and convenience instead. And it isn't ironic that Abraham says they won't be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Luke and Jesus tipping the hand to the end of the story, right? These people, even if when I rise from the dead, they still won't believe. Even when I rise from the dead, they still won't trust that the life of resurrection that they can have in me then is worth giving up this life now. They still don't trust my word that that is a good trade, that I am good for it, and you could take it to the bank. How you invest your life now matters for eternity. I was reading recently um, about the story of David Livingston. If you know David Livingston, he's a man who understood these principles and lived them out. He went to South Africa as a missionary in 1849 because he knew it was wise to trade what he could not keep for what lasts eternal. Early on in his time as a missionary, the first few years, he had to make a decision between concentrated missionary work among individuals in a particular tribe or going out and surveying the continent. He had this vision to survey the continent and to find healthy paths and roads into places where there were tribes that had never heard the gospel, where people had never traveled before, locations for future missionary stations. And so he saw his exploration as opening up the country, of, or the continent of Africa, rather, to the gospel to find these faster, safer routes to people who had never heard of Christ, to share with the world about these peoples, that people's hearts would be turned, that God would turn their hearts to, to want to share the gospel with these people who have long lived lost from it. He had a long-term perspective. He knew that that work would be fulfilled long after 
he had died. And yet he set to work anyway. And the secular media, on the one hand, hailed him as a great explorer, totally missing the fact of what he was doing or why he was doing it. Many Christians at the same time wondered why he's wasting so much time wandering around this continent. Livingston, we we paid for you to go and share the gospel with people in Africa. Why are you wandering around in forests and jungles? But he knew that he served the owner and not his possessions. He was not looking to justify himself. He was not looking to gain glory for himself only for God. In fact, all this garnered him some resistance even, like I said, among Christians. He wrote one time in his journal to his wife, quote, I will go no matter who opposes. I know you wish as ardently as I can that all the world may be filled with the glory of the Lord. They knew that they did not own their lives, but they were stewards of it, and they gave it to the work that God had given them. And in another journal, he wrote this, quote, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is enough. We can afford to work in faith, for omnipotence is pledged to fulfill his promise. He believed that God would make good on his promises. Well, traveling all over the continent, Doing that work in 1872, while on his knees praying, so deep in Africa that it took 11 months to get his body back to England. It was carried by the hands of natives out of the country. He died on his knees praying. It wasn't about how much he had. It was never about how much he had in this life. He wasn't the only person that God used, but God did use him, and he used his writing, and many people decided to go to Africa to be missionaries. And for 150 years after he died, countless missionaries have gone there, reflecting what Livingston knew. The time for decision is now. The time for decision is now. And today, There are over 650 million Christians in Africa, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, where Livingston walked all over. It's more than any other continent in the world today. That, friends, takes trusting in God's Word and not in the things of the world. Let's pray. Lord,